This is the Mothers of Reinvention, and I am your host, Jess Zaino. Yeah, back it, back it. Yeah, pull up to the bumper game with the signal. Cover me, cause I'm changing how to handle on it. My life, but I'm broke it. When I get to where I'm going, gonna have you saying it. On every episode of this podcast, I connect with rebel women who share their never-before-heard stories about how they reinvented themselves and how this set their course to success. Today's guest was born and raised in Kingston, Jamaica, and worked as an artist and TV and radio host in her home country before moving to the U.S. in 2005. New York Public Radio has recently appointed her the executive director of the Jerome L. Green Performance Space after she created close to two decades of award-winning, purpose-driven economic and civic action as the president of BRIC, a leading arts institution anchored in downtown Brooklyn. She was the first immigrant and first woman of color to serve as BRIC's president and one of the very few women of color to lead a major New York cultural institution. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and two children. Please welcome to today's show my friend, Christina Newman-Scott. Hi, Christina. Hey, Jess. It's so fabulous to be with you. It's so fabulous to have you here. (laughs) Uh, um, So I want to start at the very beginning in Jamaica and your upbringing Mm -hmm. and your fine art. Can you Mm -hmm. just take us there and start there? Yeah, I mean, listen, in... And not even in small countries, but my story is a story that a lot of people can relate to because, you know, in a place like Jamaica, your parents or whoever loves you and is raising you wants you to be quote unquote successful. And the pathway to success looks like a lawyer, looks like a doctor, looks, they'll, you know, give it up for business person or entrepreneur maybe an accountant, which is what I was on the track to becoming a chartered accountant, sexy time. And that just did not feel like it was my journey. And so after going through high school and then doing A-levels, I decided that I wanted to explore arts. And so I did. And my parents nearly like had 14 conniptions but I wasn't giving up. They were not paying for art college either. They're like, you want to go, you pay for it. You know what I mean? Um, Which I did. I worked a a job and paid for like night classes and then I got in and then they took care of me. They had my back and really supported me, but um, I knew I wanted to be in creativity. What was the job that you were working to take yourself to college? Well, I actually got hired through friends of my father as a junior accountant at then called Federal Express. And I screwed that up because I'm not really good. I was not good at that. And I became a customer service agent shortly thereafter, still at Federal Express. (laughs) There you go. I knew I knew my strengths. You know what I mean? I leaned into my strengths, which was creativity and culture. But that was a good opportunity for me to make a little extra cash, invested into my night night classes at art college to build a portfolio. And that's what I did. And then I got into art college on the island at Edna Manley College of the Visual and Performing Arts. <laughs> and what kind of art were you interested in? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of um, you know, I really 
I really didn't have a particular place that I wanted to land. You know, the first year is called foundation year. You try everything. You know what I mean? You're doing sculpture, painting, ceramics, jewelry, drawing, all of it. I ended up uh, focusing on painting and installation art. Um, but I, I graduated my degree in painting. And then, you know, that was a four-year program. And after I left the school, as the cases today for so many art students, they're kind of thrown in the middle of like the unknown and you end up having to think about going right back to getting a traditional job to pay whatever bills, right? Because how are you going to make money with this degree in painting now? Um, and so I was fortunate enough to just throw myself into what was happening creatively in the country, you know, lean on friends and connections and worked in you know, film and television, working on props. I was doing radio. I was doing my art practice, like gig economy, gig economy times 5,000. You know what I mean? Like so many of us. Mm -hmm. And that's what kept me stable, really, for all those years before moving to the States. And what did that sort of radio and TV gig economy look like for mm. you? Well, I would host, <laughs> I, would, I would be like on location for the jazz festival and talking to, you know, Michael McDonald or, you know, <laughs> Lionel Richie, or it means I was in studio for, you know, the entertainment report as a guest host, um, or I was doing my own show uh, for reggae entertainment television, where again, I was kind of, you know, it, it's similar to for people of my generation, Gen Xers, such as yourself. I was like the la, the la la type of person, but in Kingston, much smaller brand, much more small, smaller country. That's amazing. What was the name? Of, well, one, what was the name of your show? It was called Re Last Night. So regarding last night. Okay, that's sexy. I know. I didn't come up with it. This girl, Quiz, who is a really fantastic personality in Jamaica, came up. She was the one that invited me to start, you know, collabing with them at RETV, and she came up with it re last night. And then was it on, is, is, was it on RETV as well? It was on RETV back in the day. Now, this is like pre- no one was watching nothing. Like there was no like YouTube, Instagram, like for real. I can't I even remember. find the show. I <laughs> wanted to find myself. I was like Googling every which way to be like, I wonder if something is out there in the world on Google. I can't find it. I did a lot of episodes. I can't find any. So I don't know where they are, but I did do them. What's amazing is that all of that culture that you were doing and all sort of that, dare I say, journalistic culture work right. laid the foundation for and was your springboard for what came next. That's so crazy, right? Like, I mean, you know, obviously, I when I moved to the States in 2005, I started to work and develop my muscle as a curator in contemporary art. So instead of being an arts practitioner, specifically, my practice became one that was focused on the voices of artists and in many ways translating what their desires were for their exhibitions. And it was really interesting because most of my contemporaries in the States 
most of them, definitely not all, were coming from academic MFA programs into curatorial practice, right? So here I was as an artist that was kind of doing and learning by doing. So when I came to the States, I was already a big ass adult. Like I was 30 years old. I wasn't like a spring chicken. You know what I mean? But I, I, it became clear to me pretty quickly that um, artists oftentimes were not listened to or they were kind of boxed into the spaces in which they were exhibited in a way that didn't feel as generative as it could. So I developed that muscle, which led to developing kind of a programmatic muscle around programs at nonprofits that are multidisciplinary, which then led to a career in government overseeing arts and culture grant making and marketing, mm-hmm. which then led to, you know, um, come going to Brooklyn to be uh, the head of brick. And now, I mean, wow. Right. Back in some ways to, even though I'm not like on the stage in this job, I mean, back in a position where it's about the intersection of artists, journalism and media. Mm, Kind of amazing. Yeah. It is right. But it's all through again, like I, the name of this podcast, the mothers of reinvention, like it's all reinventing throughout your full career to get Mm -hmm. to the place where you kind of started but also yeah. while changing in hindsight. Right. It's you know? true. Yes, it's so I do. Weird. It is weird. And you know what? I will say that before I said yes to this position, um, I I actually had a moment where I was like, am I moving myself further away from contemporary art practice, meaning visual art, gallery, you know, museum type work, even though I had never worked at a traditional museum. It, it's becoming increasingly clear to me that the way that visual artists and multidisciplinary artists are showing up in the world is really important to me. And so I was like, oh, am I leaning into media too much? And then I had, I had this moment where I'm like, wait, my job does not have to direct that passion. Like that's who I am as a human. And I can guide and direct that passion, not only in the work I am given an opportunity to do at New York Public Radio is green space, but in my daily life, like, why do I, I was like, oh yeah, you don't have to worry about that. You just, mm. you can continue to do it. So for instance, I'm curating a show, guest curating a show at the Ely Center of Contemporary Art in Connecticut. I'm consistently, you know, just making sure that I am staying close to contemporary art practice in that way. But that was like a weird moment for me to have with myself. Interesting. Where I was like, does my job define me? Like, Mm -hmm. does my job define the things I can focus my attention on? Do you know what I mean? I do, but I also know that you are defining what you're doing because that's the person (laughs) you are. So it's lovely that you're having these moments of awareness of, "Mm, is this happening? But I also know you are the strong person that is defining what you're doing. Oh, so may you. I reflect that back to you and just <laughs> I take it. Thank you. I take it. Putting it in my little heart pocket right Put here. Thank you very much. Your heart, friend. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to go back to when you moved to the states. Like, was that mm-hmm. a was that an intentional? What What was that? What was that choice to come here? And what were you hoping to accomplish when you moved here? It was intentional. You know, my family and I, we were back and forth to the States my whole life. You know, um, 
my sister and I grew up going every, you know, during vacations, it was Miami, which is where all my father's mm. family lived. So from a child, we would always be in Miami and also Canada, which is, you know, obviously not the States, but where my mother's family lives. Where so Canada? they're in Toronto and kind of all over at this point, but Toronto is where I grew up going to Toronto. And then, um, yeah, so Connecticut as a state was new because that's where my husband's family lives. That was a very different journey for me because I knew a little bit more about the kind of social dynamic of, of, of Toronto or of Miami. Connecticut was different and that was challenging my first few months. It was, I felt very isolated. There was a, a, a there, it, it felt very different, but then, you know, like any new place, you find your people, you find your spots, you dig into that, you create co community. And then it just quickly became a place that I fell in love with. Yeah. Cool. So you're there and then mm -hmm. you start building this incredible professional career. What right. was sort of the, like an incredible career here. What was the first, uh, what was the first sort of, I don't know, professional thing? accomplishment? Yeah, what was the first thing? Let me see. Let's see. When I got into my first job, which I was excited about, I had never worked for an arts organization. I wanted the job so badly. And at the same time, I was sending out my headshots to see if I could get hosting gigs because I was doing that right yeah, so yeah, I sent yeah. my headshots and my show reel to like MTV because MTV had a new um their MTV Caribbean was called Tempo do you remember this anyway no, I it's funny we were probably sending our headshots at the same time because I too was out as a host at that time and then also ended up working for MTV World as an executive producer for a while so once Tempo, and then a lot of the others kind of merged. They became MTV. Now it's called Iggy. Do you know this? No, I don't. Listen, I'm too old to know now. I mean, like, I'm like, what? My, so what is sorry. that? I know. Who knows? What are you even talking about, young people? I know. It's it's a whole new world. My 12-year-old keeps me abreast of all the new things. So I I got a call for a cat. I got a casting call for MTV Tempo. And at the same time, I was in the final phase for this job as a visual arts coordinator at an art space in Connecticut. And I made a decision to not go for the casting call in New York because the job at the organization that I started, that I got my job at, it just felt, I was like, saying like, oh, this would give me global exposure if I got a tempo job. And by the way, it was never promised. It wasn't like they were like, hey, you're hired, Christina. I mean, I have to like make them like me. But I decided that the energy that it would take to go down that rabbit hole, especially at 30 years old, I was going to redirect into building a different kind of career still rooted in the arts. And so I got the job as a visual arts coordinator. And the first thing I remember is I was coming in on the heels of a curator who had departed. And there were like years of these catalogs that were not created, like mini brochures for these artists. So those were like two or three years worth that needed to be created like out of not like the, there were some images on file 
you know, but we had to get essays written, all these things. Anyway, that was like the big first thing where I was like, I can do this. And what you know what I mean? Content? Like, I can do what this. What was the content that you were working it on? Was, it was like um, artists who were selected for these. It's a very prestigious open call program. So the artist would get an exhibit. And then uh, as part of their selection, they get an honorarium. And then get, they get like a physical brochure that they could use to promote themselves. Mm-hmm. So And then uh, a writer is paid to do like a 1500 word essay for them. So this is in 2005, right? 2005. And so I have never done this in my life, but as with anything else, and like the first time you have a child, you just got to push through what you're going to do. You just have to make it happen. And if you fail, you just got to figure it out. Right? So I've never been risk averse. Um, And so my entire career has been built again by doing is the best form of thinking and learning for me. And so I tend to trust my gut more, more so than, than having kind of theoretical references. I really trust experiential and that has really guided my entire career. I love that. I don't think that I've ever actually thought about that until you just said it. I think my reference too is like, I guess I'll just do it and then see. Yeah, you are. You're a builder. (laughs) Just say no, you're a builder. I'll give you two (laughs) matches sticks, a doll and an old cell phone. And I swear to God, you'd make a UFO. (laughs) Same. So we could go somewhere. Would you like to go? We should. Go Go somewhere warm, please. Sure, I'll get you there. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, That's lovely. So you're here at this place and you clearly take this job unto yourself and I'm sure you make it a huge success. Well, I mean, yeah, I, it, it, it felt fulfilling. And as I reflect, yeah, it felt fulfilling. You know, we, everyone reflects at their time, whether it's like prep school or high school, they're like, now that was the year, right? Like in our year, we had the best class, right? We always have that reflection. But I do feel like there was a moment for me as a black Asian woman from this other, this country called Jamaica, being in the United States and given the chance to meet artists of color Mm -hmm. that were doing phenomenal groundbreaking work. And as I looked at the over 80 exhibitions I curated in five and a half years at that first job, the majority of them were artists of color at a time when, I don't know, obviously I'm a woman of color, so I'm going to navigate to the best of what's out there. And a lot of the best of what's out there is coming from people of color. And it didn't seem strange to me. And even, but when I reflect, there was I didn't really have a lot of my, I didn't see a lot of myself, especially in the state of Connecticut during curatorial work, right? Mm -hmm. There were absolutely amazing black women leaders in the field in general, but in the state of Connecticut, I felt pretty much on an island. So it, it was wonderful to be able to connect with artists of color, to do phenomenal work, to collaborate with writers of color from all over the country, to learn from people that, um, helped me to understand the practice of, you know, what, how to see myself as a conduit for other voices. So that became like my new practice, kind of like I'm the conduit. 
I, I love that you're saying that. So that was sort of your aha moment of this is who I am. This is my brand. This is what I'm, this is, who, this is who I'm going to be. Mm-hmm. Cool. So like once mm-hmm. that happened, then what happened? Then I just, after the journey at that place ended after five and a half years, I got the opportunity to be the head of programs at the Boston Center for the Arts, which I got to tell you, that was both exciting and challenging because I was living in Windsor, Connecticut. And I had to drive from Windsor to Boston, which took without like traffic, it was like an hour and 20 minutes. If I was like at a, I don't drive fast, but you know what I mean? (laughs) 120 or two hours to two and a half hours with traffic each way. And I had uh, a one-year-old, Kendall was one. And so Gordon with his job was really running point on Kendall because I would wake up at five in the morning, get in the car, get to work. And then if I was not sleeping over, which I did three times a week away from my husband and one-year-old, I would drive back, but I would not see my child until Friday nights when I got home. And even then, and she'd be sleeping. So I did that because I didn't want to just get into another job in Connecticut. I didn't just, I didn't want to like just land into another expected thing. I wanted to stretch my muscle and this opportunity gave me, it gave me the opportunity to stretch my muscle as somebody thinking about programmatic design Mm -hmm. for visual performing arts, education, theater programs. It was, you know, all of it. So I got to zoom out even more, which was very helpful. And in a year from that, a year, one month, I got the opportunity to be the first marketing events and cultural affairs director for the city of Hartford. So bam, was back in Connecticut. Amazing. What was Gordon doing at the time that you were able to make that work? He and his family um, own the oldest West Indian bakery in all of New England called Scott's Jamaican Bakery. And so Gordon was the CEO at the time. And he had, you know, he was leading the, the bakery, but he also had flexibility, right? Because it's a family business. So he was able to run point on taking care of Kendall while I had to go to Boston. Like but then side, I came back. Can we like sidetrack for a second? Yeah, do it. Patties? Like what are they? Yeah, yeah. They're, they, they are, they're bread. <laughs> Their breads and patties are famous. Their um, their hardo bread, everyone loves a Scots Jamaican bakery hardo bread, cocoa bite, the buns, the Easter buns, the bullas, and of course they make food too. And so you know that's like a forty. I think at this point it's over forty five years old. When you met, were you like, oh, I'm Jamaican, you're Jamaican, this is faded. No, because we met in Jamaica, and so everybody was Jamaican. (laughs) Be like, you're just another Jamaican. However, he was returning from the States, which made him, like, interesting and new. You're like, ooh, where have you been for all these years, you cute person, you? But, um, yeah, so what I didn't expect was that we were going to move to Connecticut together. I had never thought of myself as somebody that would be raising my family in, in the United States. I just never thought of that consciously because I just was thought I was just going to be in Jamaica forever. I love that you were so open to surrendering to what the universe had in, in plan for you. Yeah, because the universe does have a plan. And that's the thing, you know, I, I talk about this TEDx I did a long time ago in 2014. I talk about 
my, you know, what is for you can't unfear you, which is like, if it's yours. What, is, what it's, did you just say? So it's, what is for you can't unfear you. So it's patwa, which is our Creole, our colloquial language, which means what is for you cannot be unfor you, so to speak. So what is for you? can't unfear you. So if it's meant for you, it's already yours, right? And I do believe the universe and my mother is very much about these kinds of affirmations and trusting the universe. And I fully believe that I'm always where I am supposed to be, even if it is driving me mad, right? Like, and even if it's hurts and it's painful, I have to trust the universe. I just have to do it. And it has never let me down, even am, when it's hard. I am hearing this and receiving this so wholeheartedly as though we just went to church in that moment. Yes. yes. My God, I receive it. <laughs> good. Oh, Isn't it good? That was you just so got good. to do it. That was so good. That was so good. Um, so take take us to Brick. Because that yeah. is that was that's a big one. Yeah, that was a big one. That was a big jump for me. I was leaving my position. So after I left the city of Hartford, I was um, afforded the opportunity to be the first, you know, immigrant and woman of color to be the director of culture for the state of Connecticut. So that was oversight now going from the city to the entire state oversight of the state's investment in arts, culture, creative economy, as well as having oversight of the SHPO, the State Historic Preservation Office. I learned so much from that. And three and a half years into that, I got recruited to be the president of BRIC. Now, that was my first, even though I came from a massive portfolio, that was my first job as an executive director of a nonprofit, like a stamp, you know what I mean? So there was, it was a leap in many ways. It was exciting. It was, um, it was, a wonderful opportunity to learn things I could never have imagined. And as you know, like one and a half years into that job being the, you know, it's a 40 year old institution. It had never been run by somebody of color and we were hit by a pandemic, (laughs) like one and a half years. So I felt like a dry land tourist in Brooklyn, right? I'm like, hi, oh my God, I just landed. Where's the supermarket? (laughs) what subway do I take? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know nothing. Like I'm here with my husband and our two children and I don't know anything about anything really. And, um, one and a half years in when I just started to feel like, Ooh, I know a thing or two. I can start to say, you know, I'm a new, you know, I'm not a New Yorker, but I am, you know what I mean? And then the pandemic hit shut down everything. Um, brick was, and is, a fantastic institution that is anchored by the public access media work. It's the largest public access center in in America. So that's, you know, the public access media. It is a contemporary arts organization. It is an educational arts, educational focused organization, and it is a performing arts organization. So all of those things, I was given the opportunity to build a strategy to have connectivity between all of those things so that it didn't work as a silo. And the team and I, I thought, did a brilliant job of co-creating that strategy because I believe in collective wisdom. And it set me up perfectly, quite frankly, to segue to New York Public Radio, where 
the space itself, the green space, while intimate, has such a fantastic like global reach opportunity, not only because it's it has proximity to some of the biggest, you know, um, shows like the Radio Lab. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, um, going in. Radio Lab is like my favorite, one of my favorite podcasts. It's the best. It's the best. But they have so WNYC has some of the most amazing podcasts, right? The most amazing. Podcasts. The most amazing. So the green space has been for over a decade, really capitalizing on that proximity. But I think what we can do now is think about what this pandemic future looks like, right? And the access that people or lack of access that people have to content. And what is the green space's role with this brilliant proximity to these brands, but also building out its own curatorial methodology in a way that anchors it and differentiates it in a bustling and vibrant New York City landscape. What does that look like? I don't know, but I want to like mash it up, mix it up, blend it up, tear it and restitch it. And I just want to try it all. Ah, I'm so excited for you. So I would, I mean, my question would be, I guess, like, what do you hope to achieve there? But I I think that you've answered that. Yeah. I mean, and I, I'm, uh, you know, I don't, I want, yeah, I, again, it's about how can I, with the team that has long been doing the hard work there, be a conduit to what's next, right? I'm, my curiosity is, is less about wanting what everyone has already identified as the thing and much more about what is the next thing? How do we get there? What's the unknown? And, or even how do you put both of those things in the same space? Mm. I don't want to just give people what they want as much as I want to create space to give people what they did not know they needed. Mm, That's beautiful. Do you know what I mean? So like you leave, you're like, you're like, I went to this club. I didn't know that DJ, but lo- oh my God, I had the best time dancing. I've never, it's kind of that sensibility where it's like an element of discovery. Let's bring discovery back. Let's bring grit back. Let's not be overly precious and overly formulaic about how we create, how we curate. It well, like, cannot be too precious. Yes. Like in New York City, especially there's like an entitlement and a pretentiousness that is could be so much. <laughs> But yet, when you walk in the door somewhere and you have an experience in the middle of the night in New York City that yeah. transforms you and transcends you, like that's what oh, yeah. it's about. So exactly. that's so cool that you are hoping to and intending to create that. Right, right. And, and it's anchored by a lot of the folks that are doing the brilliant things that are tried and tested and... You know, like the fact that I'm even in like community with the folks at Radio Lab is uh-huh. like a moment for me. You know what yes. I mean? I'm like, oh, MJ, hello. It's a I'm moment so for excited. me that by association, <laughs> I am speaking to you who's in a moment with them. So, and they're just incredible people. I have to say, all the folks I've met there are just so humble and smart and cool. And to be in these spaces where 
they're just like let they're just so open right to 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 the to to creating i can just I love pitch, that can i pitch something pitch it i'm pitching pitch it. it pitch here's it pitch. here's the pitch lady let I me hear say, it. here i say and i'm gonna wee this okay <laughs> i say we <laughs> from three thousand miles away i'm producing this for yeah you. yeah let's uh, do it i say we take yeah. space on saturday mornings and make yeah. a family it's a family thing so it's like yeah. for families on Saturday mornings in the green space, we're doing a live interactive radio lab come to life where we're taking some of the shows and basically um, deconstructing, like, remember that show Mythbusters? Yes. So we take, like, Mythbusters. Are you going to write this down? I'm writing it down. <laughs> I like it so far. Keep going. I mean, this is a podcast. You could, like, this will live in perpetuity. So First can- of all, you know, I have no power over anything that happens at Radio Lab. It is no. completely overseen so by phenomenal share, people share- that will, that are not going to take any orders from me, but I love this idea. <laughs> Keep so, pitching. We'll just, we're going to do it. <laughs> Um, so we are going to take, we'll take Radio Lab and we'll take the episodes and essentially yeah. bring them to life and deconstruct some of the themes that they talk about and make them live interactive experiences that families can have. So if we're talking about, right? So if we're talking about um, quantum physics, we'll have it as a live for the month of March. It's, or maybe it's a quarterly thing. So for the four quarters in a year, you get NASA to give you $3 million. Hey, NASA, it, please give me $3 million for this yes. great idea by Jess Zeno. You're going to support Radiolab in the green space to do this live interactive family thing. But bada bing, bada boom, you're done. <laughs> I Listen, so we love this that's idea. a very, that, I love this idea very much. And, you know, I'm sure that some, they've experimented in some way with, um, programming for for little for wonderful uh children that being said i think right now they're working on something called you know allison stewart has a show that she does called get lit where she interviews authors and we do that sometimes live from the space or we do it virtually but she she does this show outside of her her uh day-to-day show but um i just saw in our slack channel that they're gonna do get little and I love that. Yeah, f- focused not, on right. It's not so much for kids as it right. is just it's, it's a families. family. It's just family. It's intergenerational. It's like you know, it's so that it's just on Saturday mornings, so it gives family something to do from like ten a.m. Like to three it. p.m. I like it. I like and so it. y'all can come through because you know we all love the what's the children's museum up? Uh, is it in Brooklyn uptown? Which one? The Brooklyn Children's Museum or? Yeah. Is it the Brooklyn Children's Museum where you go and you might everything be thinking is, of it, I don't know, everything tactile. is like tactile. Mm. And so like you take these radio lab, like I'm obsessed with radio lab because it's just, I love, I just love like theories on just stuff, you know, yeah. and like hearing them talk about it in a really beautiful, easy way that's interesting and deconstructing right. these like interesting topics and I'm, I'm, I'm just like a nerd that like likes to in- hear these theories on stuff Um, yeah and families need more things and we need to be doing that stuff and this is like such a new york idea in a new york institution with like a new york so i'm gonna do some discovery jess i'm gonna i'm gonna do some discovery and see what what has been 
tried over the years or what, you know what I mean? Cause there's just so yeah. much, I don't know still two weeks in I'm, I'm definitely, this is intriguing. It, it is intriguing. It's Good. on the list. If anything it. comes of this, you will be a part of figuring <laughs> it out. Just take it. Just do it. Um, <laughs> just go with it. Just um, do it. So tell me, I want to know just in regards to artists and like who yeah. you are sort of looking at and discovering right now. I would love to know what will, this is actually a two-part question that questions don't have anything to do with one another. One, okay. are you paying attention to NFTs? And two, what artists should we be sort of like looking, looking at, at? And attention to? Yeah. Yeah. So the NFTs, yes, but B what the hell? Like, what the hell? <laughs> I just don't think, <laughs> I think there's really probably 10 people on planet earth that fully understand what the devil, the whole NFT business is from top to bottom. I have an understanding of it, but less so about how it is monetized. And there is a certain fallacy about the fact that like artists are just making mints off of it because it really, the majority of artists are really not. Um, anyway, so I am kind of, I, I am aware of it. I am looking at it. I'm trying to understand. I don't have time to dig deep into it, but I would like to kind of get to the DNA part of it to better understand it myself. So we're not there yet. In terms of artists, there are so many brilliant artists, like so many. Um, just, I guess the easiest thing to do would be to talk about artists that I've invested in personally because I've, I've spent money on them and there's so many more, but I, I'm loving, um, you know, anything by, um, Joyri Manaya. I'm loving, um, uh, Derek Adams, Ebony Patterson. Um, I just look behind me here. I've got Sophia Maldonado. We have Sia Wolfock. We have Sam McKinnis. Um, downstairs, I've got um, Damien. Why am I forgetting Damien's last name? He's so fabulous. I'll remember it in a minute. Um, Ebony, I already said Ebony Patterson, didn't I? Yes. Yeah. Who else is out here? Oh, Laisho Johnson. Oh my God, Laisho Johnson, a Jamaican artist who's lived in the States. Amazing. Based in Chicago. Um, Nicole Awai. I, listen, if you want, I don't know if you have like a, th I could type up a list of my favorite artists and send do to it. you, but I'll so it. I'll share it on many for, with the show. Please do. Yep. Philip Let's Thomas, another artist I just invested in. He's fantastic. So many great artists out there Amazing. to collect. Mm -hmm. Amazing. I love, um, I love not only following these people, but sharing these people and also like yeah. investing money and dollars into these people. Um, yes. And listen, I, I have to tell you that people still don't realize some of the best places to start your collection, which People assume that it's going to be, it's too expensive to invest in art. It's so not true. I mean, of course, there are very expensive pieces of 
work out there, but if you have a relationship with any arts nonprofit, go to any arts nonprofit in your community, whether it's a gallery, whatever it is, a multidisciplinary space, if they're having an exhibition, oftentimes nonprofits don't promote that the works are for sale. Just ask for the sale list, get the list and develop a relationship with those artists because that's such a great entry point. Some of these arts organizations that might be smaller in your sit, you know, contemporary art spaces start there because you get direct access um, and you can build relationships with artists. And at this point, I don't know, Gordon and I have, you know, over 150 pieces. And, you know, the way I think about generational wealth is that, you know, my children are going to have all this art that we have bought. And it doesn't mean that we spent 10,000 on a piece because we've never had, but they continue to appreciate and yes. their majority of color, they're done by artists of color. Um, so it's really good. Oh, Sheila, Pre- Sheila Pre-Bright is a phenomenal artist too that y'all need to look at. But that's how, yeah, that's Quick how question. we're doing. Yes. Are we ensuring this art or how are we, um, how are we keeping track of the art? So I have a list. Are we evaluating the art? Is that the word? Yes. So I have a list of, um, why is it that I cannot find the right word that I want to tell you? A catalog, an art, whatever. I have a database of Mm -hmm. all of the work that we own Mm -hmm. and I stay up to date on market, um, you know, how the work is doing in the market. Mm -hmm. I buy work because I love it. So Mm -hmm. my, my goal is never to sell it. Mm -hmm. Um, but it is every single thing we own has appreciated almost mm-hmm. every single thing. Cause there's some things that we bought that student work and the student, you know, didn't go on to do more things, but the, I don't, I'm very careful about that now. Yeah. Yeah. This is gorgeous. I love this. I, um, for me personally, I, yeah, tell me. I, I would like, I have a little, I don't have too much of a collection, but like I have some, um, this yeah. conversation has opened my eyes to really want to invest more in this very particular way. So thanks, Teach. <laughs> yeah, look, generational wealth. Your kid. Yes. Listen, another thing I did. You know how when parents have kids, they like do things like buy them red shoes. Like I have a friend who bought a pair of red shoes for every age that their daughter hit, and I thought how beautiful that was. And when he told me that story, I was like, oh, I want to do something. So I started. Every art fair I went to, I would buy um, handmade objects by artists. So there were all these brilliant utilitarian objects made by artists, whether ceramicists or sculptors. And so when Kendall and Charlie move into their first place, they're going to have an entire cupboard full of artists' handmade, loved up plates and cups and saucers and mugs. And it might not, they're all going to look real different, but they're all made by somebody's hand and loved and their artworks that they will eat and drink from. This is amazing. That's so beautiful. I need to start thinking about that for Roan. That's right. It's so so easy to do. It's like when you go, just, but just think about it, like the thing that can carry on. That's gorgeous. Um, I asked you about what your uh, vision was for the green space, but I'm, I want to know before we go, what do you hope to achieve for yourself? For myself, well, continued learning. You know, this is such rich ground for me to develop and build on my media muscle 
in a completely different way from Brick, which I did a lot of learning around public access media. But this is like, you know, the, there's this is much more kind of in a, I'm a much more in a journalistic space. And understanding, I'll be able to understand that piece of it and the news and its proximity to creativity and culture in a way that is going to be amplified. And so that coupled with wanting to create additional space for Black women to talk about their careers in media, I'm really excited about that. That's happening. It's happening in a lot of different ways, but I feel like there could be, there's space, there's space to be additive here. So what can we do to, to shine a bigger light on women like myself too, right? Like Caribbean women that are doing interesting work within the media space. I don't, I think we, there's more curiosity out there. We want to bring, shine some light on those women and not only in the Caribbean, but just like black and brown women doing their thing in these spaces. Um, because there's still such a lack of diversity. Mm, beautiful. And this is what you want for you, for you. I'm asking for you. What you yeah, this is me doing. being, again, a conduit. It yes. would give me no greater joy because if I'm able to do that, I'm learning more. I'm building my own muscle and an awareness and expanding my community at the same time. It's so beautiful. I'm so grateful. So grateful for you. I'm Not so grateful for you. Thank you. Thank you for for carving out time. I know you're so busy. So thank you. Oh, please. You're so busy. We are busy moms. We are are all busy moms. We are busy people. We are very busy. But thank you for carving out the time to be with us today. I wish you the best of the best of the best on your new adventure. Uh, I know you're going to crush it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. We are an independent podcast, so be sure to download, like, and subscribe and share this pod with other rebel women. Every bit helps to support us. I'm Jess Zeno, and this is the Mothers of Reinvention. Yeah, back it, back it. Yeah, pull up to the bumper game with the signal. Cover me, cause I'm changing how to handle on it. My life, but I'm broken. I get to where I'm going, gonna have you saying it.